Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. All right, so the portion is going to be Leviticus 6, 8 through 8, 36. Your Haftorah is Jeremiah 7, 21 through 8, 3. And the Psalm for the week is Psalm 107. And of course, we know the Torah portion is called Sav, which is the imperative form of command, right? A commandment is a mitzvah. But if you're telling somebody to do something, you sav, command, imperative. And so would you say that the sacrifices are imperative, right? So if they're imperative, then will it probably enrich us to know a little bit more about them since these are the types and shadows that are supposed to still be teaching us? We'll do the little cliff's notes on the four main types of sacrifices. Then I want to isolate a little section out of the Torah portion that discusses something we usually skip over, which is how to treat the ashes. How to treat the ashes. Because if you understand why you treat the ashes that way, then you'll understand why the souls under the altar in Revelation are crying out. So first type of sacrifice. I say there's a cliff's note. So is there more to know about them? Absolutely. But to just try to, you know, especially if you're starting out, it's good to have the background of each one. And again, the Ola offering, I call it the Olala offering because it, it represents something so important that they had to give the sacrifice twice daily, no matter what. Seven days a week, special days, not special days. Every day you had to bring the Ola offering twice a day. In other words, it was a Tamid offering in that it was perpetual. You could never stop. And so when the temples were destroyed, the destruction of this offering uh, is especially disturbing because of what it represents. Fortunately, Yeshua is building us as little temples, and therefore this particular offering can still take place, but it has already taken place in the person of Messiah Yeshua. So the Ola, and, and probably in your English Bible, it's going to say whole burnt offering. Does that sound more familiar? Whole burnt offering doesn't help you, all right? <laughs> I mean, you're just smelling burnt steak, right? Just left it a little too long on the grill. But if you know the Hebrew word for it, which is the Ola, Olala, that's how you're going to remember it from now on, right? The Olala offering. It means to go up. See, if you were to immigrate to Israel, it's called Aliyah. You only go up to Israel. You can't go down, right? You only go up to Jerusalem. You can't go down. The Ola offering is a going up offering. Now, does it end up wholly burnt up? Yes, but it's the type of offering that's going to help you remember why it's important because it means to ascend, to go up. When we resurrect from the dead, what will we do? we will go up with a shout, right? And as the Ola is going to go up in smoke, we are going to go up in a cloud. So it's going to elevate you if you bring it. Now, these two Tamid offerings are brought on the behalf of all Israel, all right? It's the umbrella offering. But you can also bring an Ola offering for certain things. If you're striving for a higher degree of holiness in your life, you could bring an 
olala offering. If you have sinned in your thoughts, Yeshua was pretty clear. If you sin in your thoughts, you're not far away. You've pretty much already done it. And so I don't know about you, but that's primarily where my battle is. It's in my thought process, and the Spirit is constantly convicting me as you're framing that in wrong. You're thinking about that all wrong. You're, you're, the pattern with which you think about life is sometimes skewed and messed up by your past experiences. Is that right, Dr. Gold? Okay. <laughs> so they kind of warp the way that we think about truth. And so if our own filters are in place and they're warping the truth, then it's our job to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and say, you know what, I let you get away with that for 30 years, and now you're going to start thinking about it differently. How many of you know that's happened to you before? It was cool last year, but all of a sudden the Spirit's not going to let you do that this year. You know, might have used that word six years ago, but I can't use that word anymore, right? (laughs) I'm retired from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, so... My daily, <laughs> what I heard, you know, it's, it gets inside after a while, as much as you don't want it to. And it, it, maybe it won't come out of your mouth, but you might think it in your thought process. And so what does the Ola do? It helps you deal with that thought process. Maybe you've failed to perform a positive commandment. So there's two kinds of commandments, positive and negative. Do this or don't do that. And so we're all going to need this at the end of days, by the way. We're all omitting things we should be doing. It's called the sin of omission, right? He said, to him who knows to do good but does it not to him, it is sin. Now, he deals with you a little bit differently if you don't know, right? There's The the different offings, they're eventually going to cover everything. But that's to show us that you can't just stand aloof. Last night we talked about silence is affirmation. You know, so husband, if your wife is talking about the cruise and you don't speak up, then consider yourself booked, right? (laughs) So a sin of omission, by not speaking up, we can create a whole new universe, right? (laughs) But it's elevation. It takes you up in your level of holiness. It's a spiritual awareness that happens. But because of the Tamid offering that's on behalf of all Israel, we can look at that Ola offering as a resurrection offering. Every day, this had to be done twice a day, evening and morning. And here's the question. When you resurrect from the dead, when do you want to stop being resurrected? You don't. Now, does it make sense why they had to do it every day, twice a day? Once you're resurrected, you want to maintain that, right? Maintain that level of immortality with Yeshua and eternity with Yeshua. So the Ola offering is part of helping you understand the resurrection from the dead. You want to be a permanent thing, right? You don't want to be in that second resurrection that John talks about in Revelation where they're resurrected from the dead, but then they have to go before the judgment seat and then they go to hell. We don't want to be in that one, do we? So the second time is the shlamim. Shlamim is the whole thing. You hear shalom and shlamim. It's the same shoresh. It's the same Hebrew root. And it's called a peace offering. It's a cool offering because it's not typically one you bring if you did something wrong. You, you can be in a kind of a happy, like, something wonderful just happened. Let me bring a shlamim. Shlamim, it means not just peace. It means completeness. It means wholeness to repay something in full. If I pay something in Hebrew, I say, ani meshalemet, meshalemet, because I'm female. If you're a male, you say meshalem. I paid it. I paid the bill, right? Everything's 
good now. So shalom is not just peace, it's being restored to a state of wholeness. So let's assume you go up in that Ola offering, you go up in the resurrection. Do you want to go in pieces or do you want to go whole? <laughs> Which pieces do you want to go up? I mean, it's we want the whole thing, right? So we want shlamim, the whole thing. We want complete restoration. We want complete absence of conflict with our brothers and sisters as we go up. Because you can't say I'm in, in good standing with Adonai, but my brothers and sisters, not so much. He says, if that's the case, leave your offering at the altar because it won't be a shlamim offering. You're still fragmented as it concerns the body of Messiah. He says, come to me second. I might be the creator of the universe. I'm going to make myself second to your human relationships because it's that important that you go up shlamim, not in pieces, not leaving part of you in unforgiveness, leaving those fractures within the body. So it, it represents that completeness and wholeness of life in the kingdom. You can bring this in fulfillment of a vow. Remember last night we talked about the king's foolish vow, but how if you make a vow, then you're expected to pay it. Now, you typically pay those vows at three important times of year, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Not that you couldn't bring it a different time, but Typically, people didn't spend the whole year in Jerusalem unless they lived there, so they had to make a special trip. So if you made that vow, typically you would make it on the next trip, right? So um, you can see in Acts, when Paul pays the expenses for some men who had taken a Nazarite vow, that they said, okay, pay the expenses for these guys to, to pay their vows off, to get their hair cut and all this stuff, and we'll consider you still in the fold, and Paul says, okay, I'm in the fold. I'll pay for this, which <laughs> he went on a trip after that. It can also be very spontaneous, you know, in terms of an offering, like something wonderful has happened. I have survived the cruise with my wife. I'm bringing a shlamim offering, right? You know, eight days in the same room. It floated our boat, right? We, we made it. Toda. Thank you. <laughs> If you want to bring it for the Moedim, if you want to bring it for a feast day, that's when you bring the Shlamim in. The third time is the Asham. You can remember it because you just ask yourself, am I ashamed of what I did? Right? Am I guilty? And it's okay to feel guilty. I know the world has conditioned us to never make somebody feel guilty or ashamed. Well, there's a difference between guilt and shame, by the way. There's no reason to shame anybody. But we need to feel guilt so that we will repent. And if we don't know the difference between the two, then we might not be teaching the word to the point that somebody is convicted and knows that they're guilty and then can make the necessary turnaround. You don't know how to turn around if you don't know it's wrong. So it's a guilt offering. And when you feel guilty, that's the time to bring that offering in. If you're ashamed of your conduct, if you're guilty about your conduct, it's really not other people's job to shame us. But often by through their behavior, they will make us feel guilty. If they're being like Yeshua as the example, and we say, wait a minute, my behavior didn't measure up to that. And I know he or she is walking in righteousness. Rather than silence the voice like Cain did, instead we learn. Like, you know, the Holy One told Cain, he says, you know what to do. Don't, don't be upset with him because he did it right. Just fix yourself, right? Because sin is crouching at the door. That's something we want to remember. 
We don't have to destroy the person who's doing it right in order to repent ourselves. So we don't have that feeling of guilt. It's also if there's doubt. If I'm not sure I committed a sin, but maybe I did. I kind of feel like maybe I did. And how many of you ever got stuck there? Maybe in a, a relationship. Did I wrong this person or did I not wrong this person? If you're not sure and it's bugging you, bring an offering. And that'll help settle it. Make sure that you've, you've done the work you need to do in the relationship. But if you're still feeling guilty, that'll help you. He knows how we operate and how we're wired. That'll help. If a Nazarite became accidentally contaminated, accidentally was in a tent or a house where somebody died, he can't, he can't be doing that. He can't be around something deadly. So he's going to have to bring this extra guilt offering. He probably wasn't discerning. It, it probably wasn't a complete accident. There's very few complete accidents. Usually we've had a few stop signs before we wrecked. If you're going to be cleansed from leprosy or a tsarat infection, then you're going to have to bring this guilt offering. The idea is you did something back there. And hopefully the priest, as he talked to you and went through this process, helped you identify what you did so that you could bring this offering. But sometimes it's by accident. You just took misleading advice, and probably that's 100% of humanity. <laughs> we took bad advice, right? And it eventually, most of it's going to go back to evil speech because most of your leprosy or tsarat infections are going to be the result of evil speech. They call it lashan hara. Right? And if you look at the, the importance of this, this is why you don't want to let this ride. We tend to excuse our own transgressions, and often pointing out someone else's diverts people's attention away from what we did. Again, it goes back to Cain and Abel. Instead of trying to distract attention out here, all these forces that made me do what I did, if you hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done that. Well, that's silly. You did what you did, just accept it. So the, the example we have of this are the two thieves. You've got two thieves on either side of Yeshua that are representing the mindset of this particular offering. They both know they're guilty. There's no question they know they're guilty. They stole. One of them just turns and curses Yeshua. What did Yeshua have to do with his stealing something? But the other thief says, hey, we're guilty. He didn't do anything. And Yeshua says, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me in the third heaven. Your soul is going to go into the garden and be stored under the altar there until the resurrection. Why? He accepted Yeshua as his asham offering. He said, this man here is innocent. He is capable of being my sacrifice. Right? So you don't have to beat anybody up if you sinned. You just have to turn to Yeshua and say, Yeshua, you didn't do anything wrong, but I did. Can you help me back into the garden in spite of this? And he'll say, you betcha. In fact, you're there already, right, in your spirit. The next is the chetat, chetat offering. And I just call that oops. <laughs> Oopsies. <laughs> Sometimes oopsies is, you know, it's a pretty big transgression. And people tend to say, well, there's no sacrifice for an intentional sin. That's only halfway true. On Yom HaKippurim, as you do the prayers, there is a sacrifice for intentional sin on that day. It can be forgiven on that day. But on a routine day, the chatat, it's more for an error. It's, I did it, but I did it unintentionally. Maybe you forgot something. Maybe you did make a vow and you forgot all about it. 
So it's your way of saying, oops, I made a mistake. I missed the mark. I didn't want to miss the mark, but I missed the mark. And so Yeshua said, you do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. How many of you have ever made a mistake because you didn't really understand the scriptures? All right, that's what the sin offering is actually for. I did it. I didn't do it intentionally. Sometimes it's done in very good faith. You thought you were doing the right thing, but you did the wrong thing. Okay, And so all of these sacrifices, they're, they're going to cover everything that we come in with. So many people, they, they feel so guilty when they come to the tour, like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to be doing this and doing this and not doing this and not doing this and doing this and doing this. And they look at this huge weight, and rather than say, wait a minute, the way has already been made through these sacrifices. And if Yeshua is these sacrifices, he can atone for my unintentional sin. He just brought it to my, my understanding now, I can repent of it, and he can take, you don't have to be mad at the church, you don't have to be mad at a priest or a pastor or a rabbi or anybody. Don't be mad at anybody, don't point the finger at anybody. Just say, Yeshua, thank you. They probably were doing exactly what they were taught, and they just passed on what they were taught. So we're not going to be complainers in the wilderness we're going to say, thank you for bringing me to the wilderness. I know I've not arrived yet. So there might still be lots more to learn. You're just going to waste your time blaming people. So the sacrifices help us just, let's deal with this and move on. You know, let's not drag the poor little lamb around for years. You know, just put him up on the altar and let him go. Let it. So let's get to the part I want to look at. Leviticus 6, 8 through 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aharon and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. This is the Ola going up, the resurrection offering, right? Ola la. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Who started the fire is the question. Supernatural. They, we were just, don't let it go out. That's the command. Do not let this fire go out. Because He's anything he asks from us, he's already given us. He gave us the fire. We just have to tend it. We didn't invent fire. We didn't invent the fire on the altar. We didn't invent Yeshua, <laughs> right? He's given us everything we need. The fire, the wood, the sacrifice itself, everything is provided. That's what Abraham was telling Isaac. Everything's going to be provided. It'll be right there. We might have to do a little wood chopping and so forth, but he created trees, so we got wood. He gave us supernatural fire, so we have the supernatural fire on the altar. We have to keep it burning, though, because if we don't keep that fire burning, there's no way to light the menorah. We want the spirit, but we don't want the sacrifice. We want the spirit, but we want to fall asleep in the night and let the fire burn out. He says, no, somebody's going to have to stay up all night and stir this fire, right? Because without the fire, we got no spirit. But he supplied the fire, See, we're not having to generate it all by ourselves. We simply guard it and keep it. He says, The priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Now, envision the altar. If you think of where beside the altar is, it's actually beneath the altar. It's at the base of the altar. So when these ashes burn up from the fire, you have to put them in a particular place because now these are clean. These are very clean ashes. They've been purged. And then later when they have to dispose of them, they can only put them in a clean 
place for storage. It says, then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Right? So they're burned down on this altar. The place where the altar was located in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And he knew eventually this is, you know, he's seeing it. It says, Abraham lifted it up. Abraham saw, right? He saw beyond his time. And so when you can raise your eyes and see with spiritual eyes, you are standing outside of time. That's why I say on Shabbat, you're not where you are. You're outside of time because you have lifted your eyes to the kingdom and you have seen the day that is all Shabbat and you have intentionally stepped into that kingdom and said, I will spend the day there because these days won't be subtracted from my life. They're outside of time. The Temple Mount... And I'm not going to give you all the literature. You can go back through the videos on the website and find the, the citations, the scriptures. And then the citations from the rabbinic literature. But where the altar was located, there's, there's some question. Was it exactly where the altar was located or was it in this uh, Holy of Holies? But there is a rock there. There's a particular rock there. It's still there to this day. And beneath it, there is an empty space, and it's nicknamed the Well of Souls. Now, the, the understanding is that where the altar is particularly, the earth of that particular place was the earth that Elohim took when he began to form the substance of Adam. So for all mankind, the Temple Mount is home. If you've ever wondered, like, why do I, I have never been to Israel, but I've got this strange attraction, like I need to go there. I need to put my feet within its, its borders. And if you've gone there, you know what happens when you just break into the airspace above it. You'll start crying. You don't know why. And you'll hear other people kind of, you know, especially when those lights go down and you know you can't be seen. Everybody's like tearing up. Even if they live there. I've watched them. Even if they live there, they know when they're back in the airspace. There's something about this space. You're getting closer to the place where you were born. And so you could see why the Temple Mount has always been a matter of conflict. The peoples of the earth know that is home. And they know that controlling that particular piece of property gives you at least figurative control over the earth. That's the, the seat of administration. And so putting these ashes beside the altar, basically you are being reduced back into your first state of being in the natural sense, not the spirit that was breathed into you, but in your very skin, your organs, that part of you. We all came from Adam, all of that. It would have originated from that soil between, beneath the altar. And so now... I want you to just start thinking. We'll get there eventually. I want you to start thinking about those souls crying out from beneath the altar in Revelation, saying, how long, O Lord, until we are avenged? Because you understand they're stored there. The idea is we're looking at where the physical altar, maybe if we look at pictures, where the physical altar would have stood. But what you need to see is what's above it, which is the throne. Because the altar was understood to be beneath the throne. Last night I showed you the graphic of the, the rivers of Eden and showed you how the waters flowed from beneath the throne and watered the whole garden, right? Just add to that 
image in your head on top of there. Just imagine the throne the way that John describes it in Revelation with the water coming from beneath the throne. All right? And so the area beneath the throne, it's an altar. And so the, the souls, if you go into the rabbinic sources, they'll say these souls of the righteous are stored under the throne. If they're stored under the throne, it means they're being stored in the Garden of Eden. They're being stored basically in the palace of Messiah. It looks like just a ritualistic, like, gee, glad I didn't live back then, you know? Glad I wasn't a Levite, all that blood and ash, you know? Ritual is all teaching you something. If, if you're scared of ritual, get unscared, because you're going to be pretty miserable in the temple, right? <laughs> it's all about ritual. But see, once you know what it means, right? Once you know what it means, then the ritual becomes meaningful. And so just don't reject the ritual if you don't know what's behind it, right? Now, if you know there's something horrible behind it, absolutely get rid of it. That's a tear, right? That's a tear addition. But there might be a tradition that's actually leading you into truth and helping you walk in the truth and experience the truth. Leviticus 17.11, what's going on with these sacrifices? It says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, right? So you see how the ashes represent the souls that are purged there, because those animals represent you, right? And what's being purged away is that beastly aspect of human beings that we have inherited from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's become part of us now. We ate that food. Because we all trace back to Adam. We ate that food. And that food is still in our DNA. He said, okay, to deal with this, let's put these animals on the altar. And as you understand each reason why, you're going to understand that it's going to make an atonement for your souls. Because he needs to gather your soul back to that place of origin. He needs to take you back to the Temple Mount. He needs to take you back to the place where you were born. And he says, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So that helps us understand then Revelation 6, 9. It says, when the lamb, and how was he standing in Revelation? How did we know he was worthy to open the seals? How was he standing? As if slain. He wasn't worthy because he was standing. He was worthy because he was standing as if slain. He's making us think of these altar sacrifices. He's taking us back to the altar. He says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. It is your testimony to the word of God that will cause your soul to be burned on that altar every day. And your ashes are going to burn down. And you say, see, Esau thought he was going to die if he didn't eat something. He said, give me some of that red stuff or I'm going to die. Well, he wasn't going to die. There's food everywhere. You ever think about that? Why are you saying you're going to die when there's food all over the place? It has a deeper spiritual implication. He represents the soul, the animal soul. When he was born, he was red and hairy all over like a beast. And so you're putting your Esau on the altar every day. That appetite that says, if I don't get what I want, I'll die. If I can't act out in this way, I'll die. But what will happen? Just the opposite. Because you know, if you don't do that sin, you won't probably die, right? <laughs>
If you don't commit adultery, I don't see you dying because of that, right? But that's what the soul will tell you because it's mixed up. He has to take you back to that altar and purge those thoughts, those wrong-headed thoughts out of you until it's burned down to the, what he started with, until he's starting with the ashes and the dirt under the altar. And then he's going to rebuild you at the resurrection. Now, again, it's thought that when a righteous person dies, they are ushered into the Garden of Eden. Like we said last night, the first person that's thought will meet you is Adam, who says, we'll greet you with great joy. Isha, why are you weeping? You can't cry in here. This is not the place to cry. You cry when you leave, right? <laughs> but when you come back in, be cheerful. Then they say you'll sit down to a meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll have a banquet. And you say, well, how will I eat without a body? Don't ask me. But I knew, do know that the Holy One says these sacrifices are his food, and he doesn't have a body, right? So we don't understand everything there is to know about eating yet. So there's a banquet there. If you believe in the resurrection, if you believe Yeshua is the resurrection, but there was a particular group of people in Yeshua's life who did not believe in the resurrection. That was the Sadducees. The Pharisees actually put together the doctrine of the resurrection. But the Sadducees, and so they're always asking them questions, asking Yeshua questions, and he knows they don't believe in the resurrection. They're just trying to set a trap. And he'll turn to them and he'll say, well, you know, there's going to be many who come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, and they're going to sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, you'll see it, but you won't be able to enter into it because you didn't believe in it. He'll give you what you believe, right? He says, okay, Sadducees, you don't believe in a resurrection doesn't mean you won't continue to have a soul of awareness after death. It just means that you can't engage where people like Lazarus. See, the rich man, he could see Lazarus was absolutely okay over here in Abraham's bosom. This area that goes around the altar is called the bosom. It's called a chek in Hebrew. Chek. Chek is bosom. So if these souls in the parable are in Abraham's bosom, where did Abraham offer Isaac? You know this. On Mount Moriah, on the Temple Mount, where the altar would have stood. That is Abraham's chek, his bosom. So the souls of the righteous are stored in Abraham's bosom, there under the altar those ashes being purged, being burned down, so that when he rebuilds them, they will be made from everything clean at that time. You'll have an awareness after you die. That's your soul. You won't have a body, right? But your soul will be stored in this safe place if you have maintained the testimony. That's your safe place. If you have been poor. Remember the bread that you eat at Passover is called halachma'anya, the matzah? means the bread of the poor. See why the feasts are important? We miss big stuff. If you have eaten the Passover, Yeshua said, do this in remembrance of me. If you maintain your testimony of Yeshua, if you keep the commandments, the word of God, as it says here in Revelation, then your soul is stored against that day of resurrection. And the understanding, and they're taking this from different places in scripture, because you won't have a body once you cross over, as the ultimate Hebrew, you'll be crossing the river back in you're going to be given a garment and it'll give you some sort of form to where you can function in the garden until you are restored to your body, right? So I call it a space suit because uh, <laughs> you can't be in that space 
you know, as just a soul and do the things that scripture says you'll be doing. But with his spacesuit, with this temporary robe that they say the angels will give you, then you will be able to function in that place until the last soul comes in. Once the last soul is clicked in to the altar, that's when the resurrection of the dead occurs. We don't know what that number is. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen. That's not given to us. So Exodus 12, 7 through 27, I don't know that I want to read the whole passage, but again, it, it brings in this idea of an altar and blood. And it has to do with the Passover, right? The, the bread of the poor. When you die, you want to have eaten the bread of the poor. You want to be a poor person when you die. With Jews, everybody's buried basically in a linen bag. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you come into the world the same way, you're going to go out of the world the same way. Everybody is just in plain linen. So there's no distinctions between rich and poor and death. Kind of an idea like as we cross over, there will be no distinction. We'll all be poor people in the spirit, but blessed are you if you were poor in spirit and you have eaten the bread, the matzah, free of the chametz, free of pride and malice and all those evil things. So it, for the first Passover, and we don't do this anymore, you don't put blood on your doorpost anymore. There's, there were instructions to follow that, but for that time there had to be blood on the door, but freak your neighbors out, right? <laughs> I knew they were in a cult. <laughs> But they would have to take that blood and, and put it on the, the lintel and the doorposts. And then they had to eat the flesh that same night. And they had with it the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, right? The bread of the poor. And so he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. On the houses where you live. Now there is still today a way to, air quotes, blood on the doorpost where you live. What is that called? It's something you put on your doorpost as a sign. A mezuzah, right? A door, a threshold is also considered like an altar. Something has to pass. There's a transaction there. There's a going in and a coming out. There's things that happen inside the house, and there's things that happen outside the house. So if you're bringing a sacrifice to the altar, you realize you get to that point and it gets holier, 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 holier as you go in. The same with your house. Outside your house, there's a lot of unholiness going on. But when I see the mezuzah on your doorpost, you're telling me as a family, this is a covenant home. This is like the blood on the doorpost because it says it's going to be a sign for you. That's exactly what he said about the mezuzah. It's going to be a sign for you. So just as the death angel passed over the Hebrews' houses, when the day comes, that mezuzah will also be a sign on your doorpost that these are in covenant. They are eating the holy meals on the altar of their table every Shabbat. That's important. He says, when your children say to you, what does this mean to you? You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our homes. Right? The parallel there, again, has to do with saying the mezuzah is the same thing as that blood on your doorpost. In a day of trouble, when the death angel is passing through, he looks at the mezuzah and says, let me skip right over that. And Exodus 12, 26 gives us more clarity. 
It says, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. And I know we don't have time to do it this time, but if I do come back, Bezrat Hashem, uh, we can go, we can learn about the beast and how the serpent gave his authority to the beast way back when, how those kingdoms line up and, and how that's all even working out to this day. And it's just, it's all, the literature's always been there. It's just that we bought books out of the Christian bookstore and they didn't always, you know, go back to the, the roots of the faith and look at it the way it has always been understood and the way that even John would have understood it. Because John never went to church. He went to synagogue. He went to the temple. John never went to church. He didn't go to First Baptist on Main Street, right? Neither did the apostles. They, they had a specific background that they brought into their, their meetings and their congregation. So, so much of the stuff that we associate with the apocalypse never entered their minds, right? It's, it's been formed over the years. He says, there was no home where there was not someone dead in Egypt. Then he called for Moses and Aharon at night and said, rise up. What does an Olah offering do? Rise up, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Go, worship the Lord as you have said. What do you intend to do when you rise up? You intend to live in his presence and to worship him. Take both your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. At Passover, and again, that that picture we have is of Yeshua's resurrection during the Passover. But it's also cluing us in as to a future rising, which we would associate again with the Feast of Trumpets. So if we've got this rising up, leaving Egypt on the third day, remember they're journeying out of Egypt at that time, and then they enter into what's called Sukkot of glory or clouds of glory. And that's how they traveled in the wilderness unless they sinned, and then they got kicked out of the cloud. If we put that third-day resurrection over here with the other resurrection in the fall, which is the Feast of Trumpets, if we look at it according to the chiastic structure, we're looking at resurrection days. So if you want to understand the Passover resurrection, you look at the Feast of Trumpets. If you want to understand the Feast of Trumpets resurrection, you go back to the Passover where he says, rise up, go and worship, as you have said. And again, if, if we can get into some prophecy stuff sometime, we can look at the, the mirror image of these 10 days during the period of Passover, where in Revelation they're told, uh, you're going to be thrown into prison for 10 days, don't worry. It's not something to worry about. You are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. Well, as that would occur in the spring, during this period, if we go over here, that same 10-day period is mirrored between the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur. And it's nothing to be afraid of if you're already sealed. And so he says, It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So Passover shall serve as a sign on your hand, as phylacteries on your forehead. With a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Right? And then later, as we get to Sinai, he begins to tell them about the mezuzah about their doorpost. It literally means a doorpost. It's not always just the little box. The mezuzah literally is the doorpost. Now, why would you not literally write it on the doorpost? What's inside of it, first of all? The scroll. It's got the the related passages concerning the commandment itself. It's got the Shema. And in the Shema is the sacred name, yod heh vav Now, if you're writing yod heh vav 
in places where it can be erased or defaced, do you see the problem? So they, they said, okay, these containers will protect the text from the elements of the weather, right? Because if I scratch it on the doorpost, then I might be moving, moving furniture in and all of a sudden I've wiped a letter out of the name. And then it's not a true word. It's defaced. Something has been taken away from it. We are not supposed to take away from the word. And so you use the little mezuzah container, and often you can see, if you look at archaeology pictures, how they would even have a little recessed place in the doorpost where they could stick, and it would be even more protected in that doorpost. But every so often, you're supposed to take it down and let somebody examine it, typically a, a, a sofer or a scribe, and he can look at it and make sure that there's not been any damage to the words so that there would be effacement. And if there is a problem, then it can be taken care of properly and you can get a new scroll put in there. So that's, you say, why did they put that? Why are they calling that the mezuzah if it's a doorpost? Just because of that, you don't want to erase or deface the name itself. And they've been using that particular method, we know at least since the time of the Qumran scrolls. Right, that's we know it goes back that far. So they say would it have been that way in Yeshua's day? Thumbs up, right? So they call it mezuzah, doorpost, and it comes from a Hebrew word ziz, ziz. And in the verb form, it has to do with movement. Like if if I wanted, say, Robin, if I wanted her to move, I would say Zuzi, because she's female. If I wanted Pastor Kin to move, I'd say Zuz, move, go somewhere. You're a living creature, move, right? But it, usually if you hear it in Israel, somebody's telling you to move it, you know? <laughs> You're taking up too much space on the bus, Zeus. But it's uh, from a root that means to be conspicuous, which it is. If you're in a Jewish neighborhood, you'll notice a mezuzah. If you go into an apartment building and all of a sudden you see a mezuzah, you know who lives in that house, or at least who used to. So it is conspicuous, but it, it usually means the fullness of provision, or, and this is what's important, a moving creature, a beast, a moving creature. So what is it about a moving creature that needs to be a sign on my door? Are we familiar with 666 and the beast? And <laughs> well, if, if you understand the sixth day of creation, you've, you've figured out pretty much the beast except for the details, right? You've got the big picture. Because there were two things created on the sixth day, the man and the beast. The prophecy was, as Rebecca realizes she's got twins, she's carrying twins, and they're already fighting. It's so bad, she goes and she says, somebody tell me what's going on in here. Because I've got World War minus one or something going on in here. <laughs> and they, the thing is, the older will serve the younger. Well, when we look at the creation of the sixth day, the older creation are the beasts. They were created first. And look how many times, if you'll go back to the sixth day, how many times it says, after their kind, 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 to the point where like, does he think we're stupid? No, he doesn't think you're stupid. He thinks you're slow. <laughs> right? So I'm just going to have to keep telling them this till they get it. Because you are not after that kind. That's where we're going with this. You were after the kind of Elohim. You were to conform to the image of Elohim because you were the younger of the sixth day, but you were created to rule 
over the beast, the firstborn of the day. So as Jacob was going to prevail, the spirit was going to prevail over the soul and the body. And it helps to know the difference between spirit, soul, and body. Obviously, your spirit comes from Elohim. It's He breathed that into you. But your soul is your appetite, your emotion, your desire, and your intellect, which even the beasts have a soul. A beast has a soul. That's why we're so, it's so often that we confuse ourselves with a beast. We've got two little French bulldogs. Go tell daddy it's time for your snack. Well, my husband is not a French bulldog. <laughs> he is not their daddy, right? <laughs> but you see how easy it is to slide into, like, we're born on the sixth day, you know, so we've got something in common. And they're like, I don't care what you call him. I just want a snack, right? <laughs> but we are to prevail over spiritual authority in us, prevails over appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. On Yom Kippur, your soul says, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm going to die if I don't get some water. And then if you know me, I'm probably going to text you juicy food images. (laughs) I'm going to text you these big glasses of cold lemonade with mint, melting ice, or a video of running water. Because I'm going to make sure your soul is afflicted well. <laughs> now, I don't usually do it till a couple hours before sundown. I, I don't, because <laughs> I know by then you're on the home stretch, right? <laughs> and so now everybody starts doing it to me first. So I guess I had that coming. But your soul's going to be all whiny and complaining. I don't want to fast. Does he mean that literally? Didn't Yeshua already do all this so we don't have to do it anymore? But didn't Yeshua say this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting? Like, get a clue, folks. Engage in your feasts because every year your spirit tells your soul you will not die if you don't eat some red stuff. You will not die. You will live and you will not. If you take medicine, please take your medicine. <laughs> I was like, oh, I can't take my medicine. Yes, you can. Live in the Torah. Don't die in it. But a normal, healthy human being will not die if they don't eat or drink for 25 hours, right? You will think that's your soul talking. If you want to know what does your soul sound like, listen to yourself on Yom Kippur. Listen to yourself when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're disappointed, when someone lets you down, when they betray you. That's the voice of your soul. That's Esau talking. And so your Jacob has to come in and say, Esau, uh, shut up. You ever notice in the Psalms where it'll say, be silent, O my soul, because your soul never knows when to shut up unless the spirit tells it to. Your beast is out there, and your spirit's like, grow up, right? We're growing up in Yeshua. We're disciples. We can do this. And finally, the soul will begin to trust your spirit over time. And say, well, you know, you were kind of right last Yom Kippur. We didn't die. It wasn't pleasant, but we didn't die. So, okay, I guess we could do it this year, you know, but let's make sure we get that last drop of coffee as it counts down, right? And then the next year, you're like, well, yeah, we didn't die the last two years. We, we can do it. Okay, how about a caffeine pill? You know, it's, so you'll, they'll start having this conversation like, yeah, I want to believe you. Why? Because you are conforming your soul, your beast, 
to the image of Elohim, to the spiritual authority that he wants you to walk in. Sometimes it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Sometimes you should speak up, and you don't. And so your spirit says, bless him. Talk, soul. Now's the time to talk, right? So that helps you understand a little bit the dynamic of the sixth day and what's, eventually you'll get the details of Revelation. But mainly that's what's happening. There's less to worry about with events outside of you than events inside of you. You have to fix that first, or you're never going to figure that out there. So when you put this mezuzah on your door voluntarily, it's a sign of a covenant relationship. It's just like a Passover blood on the, the doorpost. And you renew that sign each week on Shabbat. Because normally what should happen is you're going to have that Shabbat meal. Hopefully you're having three of them either with like kind and like mind or in your home with your family. That Shabbat meal is like a constant renewal of the covenant because Shabbat is the sign. It's a perpetual sign. It's like that Ola offering. You never want Yeshua to stop being your Ola offering. Because once you resurrect, you don't want to just be whole. You want to live forever. And so the mezuzah says that there is a difference on Shabbat, especially every other day too, in terms of the commandments. But especially on Shabbat, something is happening inside this home that may not be happening outside the home. The living creatures are moving out there. The beasts are moving out there. But inside this home, the spirit has prevailed over the beast, and they will be sitting there at that covenant meal, renewing their relationship. So in a day of trouble, where do you want to be on Shabbat? You want to be in a place where there's a mezuzah on the door. And not just, you know, ticking off a box, but because that's where your heart is. That's your spirit has led you in there. So it is a sign of submission to the creator of all things. You're saying Elohim is the creator, and I ain't, and I never will be. But see, when the beast prevails, you do make yourself God. You dictate your own life. You disregard what the commandments say, and you were impelled by your appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. Your appetite will tell you what you do that day. Your emotions, see, there's the danger zone with us. Emotion will get you in big trouble, because it doesn't matter what you feel. Messing people up, huh? Who cares what you feel? I just didn't feel the spirit. What's more real, the spirit or your feeling? See, you, you may not be feeling it that day because he's weaning you away from a feeling that's touching your soul and saying, that's not the same as me touching your spirit. Because his spirit can move your soul. But see, if, if your soul's out of discipline that day, you may not feel. There's a different kind of feeling. And you know the difference. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Because he prays in worship. Not a bad thing, but how many of you have ever seen a praise and worship service where it looked to you like it was just all emotion? And if people didn't get pumped up, the worship leader would get upset and they would keep singing the song over and over and over and over like the prophets of Baal. <laughs> like if we just sing it the way we sung it last time, then surely the spirit will come down. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to deal with you that way today. Grow up. I want you to know I'm here whether your soul is experiencing it or not. If you don't know I'm here without your soul telling you that, then you need to get on a soul train somewhere, right? (laughs) 
He's teaching those two parts of you how to work together. He wants your soul to trust your spirit because it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what is written. You know, our, our walk is not about I feel. Our walk is about it is written. And once your soul is disciplined to that, trust me, it will begin to feel the spirit in a much more authentic way than you ever have before. You don't have to sit around and wait for somebody to pump you up. You can sit there in perfect peace and worship and know that, oh my goodness, if I don't clap my hands fast enough, somebody's going to get upset and think the Spirit's not here. It's not performance-based. It's just knowing in your spirit that He is there, whether you feel Him as that just ecstasy, and we've all been there. If I could dance, I would dance. But you do what you can do. But it's okay if we just sit there and soak in it. That's just as valid because that's part of peace. That's part of your shlamim. Being whole doesn't mean you express something in a particular way. And so this mezuzah, it separates man and beast. It says these people in here, they're under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. And Yeshua wants to come in there and dine with you. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll hear my voice, just let me in. And I'll come in and I'll dine with you. Yeshua is at your meal. On Shabbat, he comes in. If you will let him in, and what's he looking for? He's looking for a mezuzah on the door. That's how he knows there will be a Shabbat meal in there. But the difference between what goes on inside that house with the mezuzah and the living, moving creatures outside is that they'll eat anything. That's the definition, Psalm eighty thirteen. It says the boar or the pig from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves, that's the same word, ziz, Whatever moves in the field feeds on it. If you're willing to put just anything in your mouth, (laughs) you're being compared to something. Uh, (laughs) But it's basically, outside this house, they'll eat anything. Inside this house, they eat covenant meals. They have an identity because the younger is ruling over the older. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. Thank you.